Carter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to The Interpreter Show. Once again, I'm Neil Rapley. I'm joined here in studio by Jasmine Rapley and Stephen Smoot. And we have uh, Hales Swift joining us by phone. Uh, we've been, we spent pretty much the whole first hour discussing the Interpreter uh, Temple on Mount Zion conference yesterday. Uh, if you missed out on that, as Jasmine mentioned, you can go to YouTube, uh, Interpreter's YouTube channel. And... You can watch the live stream sessions uh, on there, and I think they'll be they'll be breaking that out so that you can just watch specific presentations later. But now uh, it is time for us to begin uh, the "Come Follow Me" portion of our show tonight, and uh, to, uh, this week we'll be talking about the Book of Malachi. This is the last "Come Follow Me" for the Old Testament. Um, wow! The very last. I guess it makes sense. It's yeah. the end of the, I don't know why I was so shocked at that. You, I was like, "Yeah, it's the end of the old, the Christian Old Testament." I guess that makes sense. Yeah, you were probably thinking of you know if it if this were the Hebrew Bible, it's the end. Yeah, of the that's book what, of the I 12, think. The Hebrew ordering. Still, it, yeah, there's still there's several still books to go. But, <laughs> but no, this is Malachi. This is the end of the Christian Old Testament, and so this is our last "Come Follow Me" uh, Old Testament uh, lesson uh, that we'll be doing. Um, Next week, obviously, they'll begin with the New Testament uh, to give you some advanced material for, you know, getting started with that. Uh, but today, like I said, we've got Malachi, a nice short book that uh, that comes at the end of the Old Testament there. And I believe, Stephen, you have uh, our introduction and uh, we'll get us started with some insights into chapter one. Right. So Malachi... Or Malachi, if you're reading it in Hebrew, which means, of course, my messenger, the very first verse, an oracle, or the burden of the Lord. I'm going to be switching between NRSV and KJV, hashtag sorry, not sorry, but uh, just to help make things work. Uh, it's a Massah, an oracle, a pronouncement, KJV, a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, the very first question you have to ask yourself as you're reading it is, is Malachi the name of a dude, or is it just meaning my messenger? Because in Hebrew, grammatically, it can be either. You can have it be either just the word of the Lord by my messenger or the word of the Lord by Malachi. And uh, people debate back and forth. Is it an actual prophet named Malachi? Is it, is it just a name? Is it, is it a title for another prophet? Um, some, some Jewish exegetes say it might be Ezra, and we'll get into why. So anyways, that's the first thing you've got to figure out is, is who's this Malachi guy? Well, the text doesn't give us any like real information about him. I'll just assume that he's a is a guy. That's just kind of my default assumption. He's an actual prophet. Uh, um, so if he is, which we'll assume, there's no information about him, right? You don't get his genealogy, who his dad was, where he's coming from, anything like that. So, uh, so we we're in the dark there. You also don't get a dating to the book. So some of the other prophetic books, you get like in the during the reign of King So and So, right? Uh, and they'll end up. You don't get that in here. So we have to piece together contextually. Um, when is Malachi writing or prophesying? When is the historical setting of this book? And biblical scholars have landed pretty consistently on the Persian period. So we're talking end of the 6th century, early 5th century, right? 
Um, I th- I like to put it sometime between maybe uh, you know 515 BC to like 485 BC, right? Um, the reason for that being is, and this is again a, a pretty standard argument scholars have made. Malachi seems to assume that the temple has been rebuilt, but that Ezra is not yet really on the scene, um, and so. Uh, there's some interesting, like, where do we stick him in the Persian period? Um, and I think that kind of might that might work. And that can be confusing because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament yeah. for most Latter-day Saints. Right. But, and so we can yeah. think it's like, oh, it's chronologically at the end. Jokes. <laughs> but yeah, but, but chronologically it's not. That's the other problem. So uh, where, do you, where do you stick this in the Old Testament? So, so the Jewish uh, tradition puts it at the end of the prophets, the 12 prophets, right? Um, but the twelve prophets, uh, but that doesn't run chronologically because um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles and Daniel all come after chronologically. Then, uh, um, well, I guess not necessarily Daniel. Compositionally, Daniel comes after, but chronologically, certainly Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles is supposed to come after um, uh, Malachi. So it's it, so it's weird where you put it. So again, questions about the the chronology, questions about the context, questions about who this guy is. Uh, for the purposes for our discussion, I just sort of accept the consensus of most biblical scholars. We're probably talking early Persian period. We're probably talking sometime between when the temple has been rebuilt, but before Ezra becomes the prominent f- figure in the community. Um, be- well, we'll see in chapter one, Malachi seems to assume that temple sacrifices are happening again, but that they're doing it in a bad way. That's kind of the point of chapter one, right? So, so that lends some context. There's also Persian words that appear in Malachi. So, so the form of Hebrew has lots of like uh, Akkadian and Persian loan words in it. So that also gives, like, even just in chapter one, um, if you go down to verse, uh, let me see where it is here. He mentions it's like the- you get from the slang, as it were. Well, he mentions um, the governor. Um, I had the verse here. Anyways, he says, you know, go and ask your governor something about this. Well, that's an Akkadian word, loan word, uh, 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 um, a pecha. Uh, that's an Akkadian loan word that's used to describe a Persian satrap, right? So uh, things like that. Okay, sure. Oh, here it is. It's in verse 8 of the KJV. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? And again, the Hebrew is pecha. So anyways, Linguistically, pretty good. It's in Persian period. Thematically, seems to be Persian period. Now, for us Latter-day Saints, here's what's interesting. Jesus shows up in the land of Bountiful in 3rd Nephi, and he brings the Nephite disciples together, and he has, says, "Bring, give me your books. He opens the books, and he says, hey, you've left some stuff out here. You left out Samuel stuff, right? And he also says, you also don't have this guy Malachi. I'm going to quote him for you. And then Jesus proceeds to quote excerpts from Malachi. So um, even the Book of Mormon seems to acknowledge that Malachi was not known among the Nephites until Jesus shows up. Now, that gets complicated by the fact that there are allusions or perhaps quotations or paraphrases of a few verses of Malachi in the small plates in First and Second Nephi. Uh, we can debate why that might be there, maybe the translation. Um, I actually think maybe, maybe he's quoting Zenus. Who knows? Um, but point being, even Jesus seems to say, hey, you guys didn't have Malachi. So Malachi, even from a Book of Mormon perspective, seems to be a post-exilic prophet. Um, and so that's another thing that sort of puts us in the historical context here. Finally, the other reason why Latter-day Saints care about Malachi, of course. So besides Jesus quotes him to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, he quotes chapters 3 and 4. Um, Moroni also quotes Malachi to Joseph Smith when Moroni appears to Joseph Smith in September of 1823, except the punchline is 
Joseph Smith remembers with, with, with variation from how it reads in our present Bibles. And he goes to quote Malachi and do sort of like a sort of a midrash on Malachi almost by quoting it in a way he doesn't quote the King James version. He quotes it. He says, you know, uh, I will restore. What does he say? I will seal or I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Uh, and then he invokes the priesthood involved that, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Go, go read Joseph Smith history. I don't have it up on me in front of me, but we all know the verse, right? So, so we like Cover, Malachi because of this idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. Moroni sort of does a midrash on that with Joseph Smith, or perhaps he's quoting another, another version of the text that was floating out there that links us with priesthood and sealing power. Um, and then Joseph Smith goes back to it in Nauvoo in DNC section 128. <coughs> Excuse me. DNC 128, he quotes Malachi again. Um, again, linking it with, with priesthood ordinances and temple ordinances. Okay, so... That's pretty Latter-day good with the Saints context, right? also like it because of the tithing verse. Tithing, of course, tithing. Well, and that goes into this idea that Malachi seems to be operating with the idea that the temple is back and you need to pay tithes and offerings to God's temple, right? So how are we going to do this if there's no temple? Okay, so so that's a bit of the context. So if we go to verse, so the first couple of verses, it's, you know, the oracle of Malachi, uh, uh, the word of the Lord by Malachi. Uh, starting in verse 2, we have this famous uh, phrase that the Lord loves Jacob and hates Esau. Uh, so he evokes the, the language of the brothers Jacob and Esau, the story from Genesis, right? He uses this as an image for uh, the Lord uh, honoring his covenant with Jacob. Verse 6 is where things start to go off the rails because uh, from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, Malachi says, hey, you guys are offering sacrifices wrong like you're doing it the wrong way so for example um in verse seven uh let me make sure yeah so verse seven ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar and ye say wherein have we polluted these so they're they're giving uh less than stellar uh the cereal offerings the grain offerings right uh for uh for the temple offering um and then in verse eight uh, and if you offer the blind sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Uh, remember what Deuteronomy says, you're not supposed to give sick, blind, maimed animals. You're supposed to give the good, healthy ones. So we, we clearly see here, uh, God is not pleased with the fact that they are offering, we'll say, subpar offerings to the temple. And why are they doing that? Uh, are they economically not able to, you know, because they are under, this is Persian Yehud now, right? They are sort of a backwater of the Persian Empire. So are things like economically not going great? That was the whole point of Zerubbabel's temple, right? It, it was run down and kind of shabby. And so Herod the Great had to come along and refurbish it a couple centuries later. Maybe that's it. Or we can say um, the people of Israel were like deliberately being neglectful of their offerings. I think that's probably what's happening here. Uh, because later he's going to say, you've robbed God by not paying your tithing, right? Uh, not giving a tenth. So that seems to be kind of the, the, one of the big frames here. Malachi is going to pronounce oracles against Israel because they are not properly attending to the temple ordinances. From our Latter-day Saint perspective, this is obviously a, a good prophetic warning about what happens when we neglect our temple uh, responsibilities, what happens when we allow our temple attendants to become slack or when we uh, backslide on our covenants that we've made. 
uh, when we withhold a bit, when we, co- we, we covenant for the law of consecration, right? So what happens when we withhold a part of that from the Lord? Same sort of principle here um, that, that I see happening um, in Malachi uh, chapter 1. Again, verse 12, ye have profaned it. You say, the table of the Lord is polluted, the fruit thereof, even his meat, it is contemptible. You say, also, behold, what weariness is it? Uh, so, again, the people have this attitude of, oh, so what? It's not a big deal, right? But Malachi clearly is not going to have that. Uh, I'll, I'll end here on verse 14 and then hand it over. But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So... The punchline here being, if you know that you can be offering more and better things to God, you should be doing it. And when you withhold that, it causes problems. And you're going to get prophetic denouncement, uh, which happens anciently and which happens today. I feel like this is a great chapter about, you know, the offerings we give to the Lord. And we get this reminder several times throughout Malachi about whether it be the quantity of your temple attendance or the quality of your temple attendance, um, but also just the quality of every offering we give to the Lord. We believe that our callings are part of the law of consecration, that our fast offerings are part of the law of consecration, the way that we treat our ward members and neighbors. And so all of that is great opportunity for us to reflect upon if we are giving the Lord a blind or maimed or lame offering instead of giving him the best offering that we have. Um, One question I had is at the beginning, it does have this really interesting allusion back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And it says, uh, well, the Lord claims that he loves Israel. And then the Israelites respond, wherein hast thou loved us like bewildered like how on earth have you loved us because we went into exile but the lord responds was was not esau jacob's brother say the lord and i loved jacob and i hated esau and uh i ended up making uh jacob the inheritor of kind of the israelite blessings and and i think that probably can rub people the wrong way like does the lord hate people does god hate any of his children like what's the context for this so the context is love, ahava, and hate, uh, nasa, are covenant terms. So this is weird for us to think about, but like uh, they use very emotive language to describe uh, and familial language to describe covenants people enter into or treaties, right? So uh, Neil knows this because he's written on the Amarna letters. Uh, but Neil, tell us, what do you call somebody who's a superior in a covenant versus when, they're, when they are a, a co-equal or they're collateral with you? Uh, well, I don't know if I could remember off the top of my head. It's, but it's I mean, they're familial terms, right? So uh, like, oh, like, right, right. So, yeah, you have, you'll call them father, yes. right? Or brother or if brother they're if co-equals. They're yeah. And, and, yeah, in the Amarna letters, the, uh, the kind of subordinate regents, the vassal kings of the – of the Canaanite region will refer to their fellow vassal kings when they're riding to Pharaoh, they'll refer to him as my brother. Yes, and they'll use very emotive, over-the-top, emotional language to describe uh, how, how things are going in the relationship, right? So the Bible does this. So when you see these words of I, the Lord, love so-and-so or hate so-and-so, um, it's, it, it rubs us kind of wrong today because we, well, God doesn't hate people. God loves all of his children, and that's true. 
this is a this is a linguistic context. This is a, we call we would call it a register. It's a linguistic register that uh, doesn't jive with us because we don't know the context. But that's that's what it's getting at. It's getting at using covenant terms. So uh, God loved his son Esau just like he loved Jacob. He loves all of his children. But when prophets use this language to describe the covenant relationship God has with people, they're going to use this language that may be unfamiliar to us. Perfect. Speaking of covenants, chapter two is all about. Could could I actually? I just wanted to mention. Yep. Um, we see a similar thing actually happening in uh, Helaman fifteen, when Samuel the Lamanite, mind you, says that God has hated the Lamanites uh, and loved the Nephites, or something to that effect. Um, but he's talking. He's ultimately talking about how, despite the fact that God has hated them, he's prolonged their days so that they can eventually. Uh, enter into the covenant with him that they'll repent and, and come to him but uh, that can again it can feel very jarring and strong but it's this covenantal context mm-hmm. that he's talking about sorry now uh, go ahead and continue. not a problem speaking of covenants chapter two is really rich with that sort of stuff because it's all about the priestly class of israelites the levites specifically in verse one um, Malachi, or the Lord, whoever is speaking here, is addressing the priests. Verse 1 says, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. This is a continuation of what we were talking about in chapter 1, about how the sacrifices weren't quite up to par. People weren't quite giving what, all they could to the Lord. And now the Lord is calling out the priests for not performing their officiation duties in the best way they could. Um, it talks about in verse two, if you will not hear and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, said the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because ye do not lay it to heart. And this again, like what we were talking about in chapter one, sounds pretty harsh. Um, the Lord's talking about hating and now he's talking about cursing. But we have to remember that this is all coming in the context of a covenant. I mean, in verse 4, it even explicitly says, You know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. So between those verses, you get the sense that the Lord has made a special covenant with the Levites. He, The priests are set aside as special servants of the Lord, and yet because they have fallen short of those responsibilities, the Lord is cursing them. Now, when we talk about cursings, what we're really talking about here are the covenant curses. Way back in... Let's see, where would it have been? It was in like in the last chapters of Leviticus and the last chapters of Deuteronomy is where the Lord sets out the, the covenant with Israel. And part of that comes with blessings and cursings. I mean, covenants in the ancient world followed a pretty formulaic and predictable pattern. There was always, when God made a covenant with Israel, or when anyone made a covenant with anyone, uh, whether it be like a land treaty or a marriage covenant or any sort of political alliance, they often included a historical prologue, an introduction of sorts, a preamble where you're introducing the parties. You're going to list the terms and the conditions of the covenant, and then you're going to follow it up with blessings and cursings. The positive and negative consequences for obeying and disobeying the covenant respectively. And so when the Lord is talking about 
the cursings, he's specifically talking about the enumerated cursings that were laid out in the law of Moses. Um, at the very, so the whole book of Deuteronomy is really a renewal of the covenant where Moses has brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he's, uh, they're in the wilderness and before they enter the promised land, they renew the covenant. And so all of Deuteronomy is like a rehearsal of what all of the terms of the covenant are. And then at the very end of Deuteronomy, the Lord gives instructions for constructing altars on Mount Ebal and Gerizim, where on one of the mountains, they're going to shout blessings, and on the other mountain, they're going to shout cursings. And this is all part of the formulaic way to solidify the covenant, that with this sacred promise comes sacred obligations and sacred consequences if we do not fulfill our end of the bargain. And so those are the specific things that the Lord is referring to when he says, I'm going to uh, curse you. And verse 3, it talks about how I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. So that's pretty morbid and disgusting. But it's the idea that they have corrupted themselves and they're bringing upon themselves this destruction and chaos. Um, In verse 5, the Lord almost laments that, My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. And this is referring to the priest, that when the Lord set apart these priests, he, the covenant he made with them was that they were to be set apart, that they were to be full of instruction and knowledge. This is really drawing a lot on like the wisdom tradition that ancient Israelites um, believed that there was such virtue and righteousness to be found in wisdom. And we think of wisdom today as just having like very good experiential knowledge that comes from age um, and experiencing life. But, and they thought about that too, but w- true wisdom was following God's way. It talks about in verse 7 that the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So here we have kind of a definition of that wisdom that he should seek the law of the Lord. And again, we've kind of got a wordplay here with the book of Malachi. It says that he, the priest, is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And as Stephen mentioned, Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger or my angel. And so the the idea is that these priests are a separated class because they are God's messengers. They kind of represent God as officiators in the temple. Therefore, they need to keep the law, be examples of wisdom, and be the messenger of the Lord. Now, when it comes to how this applies to us, I think Latter-day Saints should take these admonitions to heart for all of us, because while in ancient Israel, the class of priests was limited to a lineage, the tribe of Levi. Latter-day Saints believe that in becoming part of the covenant, um, in participating in temple ordinances, all of us become part of this priesthood. As Stephen was talking about in the first hour, priesthood isn't just this idea of like patriarchal, abstract 
power that's given by the laying on of hands, though that's part of it. It's a hood of priests, like a brotherhood or yeah. sisterhood. Or a neighborhood. Or a neighborhood, <laughs> yeah. a priesthood. Latter-day Saints believe that participating in the temple means participating in a priesthood. Hood, a hood or fraternities, grouping, gathering, community of priests. And that includes men and women. And so all of us should consider ourselves a class that is reserved by God and that God expects more of us. We're part of this very sacred covenant. And so we need to take those promises that we make very seriously so that we can be, as verse seven says the messenger of the lord of hosts um presidents and church leaders have talked about being an ensign to the world and we really um that is how we see ourselves in some ways and that requires being better um than we otherwise would be being kinder being more giving more charitable more christ-like in all that we do and being defenders of righteousness in all that we do as well um So the second half of chapter two kind of continues in the same way, but it goes more into the dialogue. So we've already seen a lot in chapter one and chapter two also goes, has this pattern where there's a lot of question and answers going back and forth between the people of Israel and the Lord. Um, uh, Well, in chapter one, it's, The Lord says, I have loved you. And the people respond, what? How? Wherewith have you loved us? And then the Lord responds. Well, in chapter two, we have that same format going on where you've got that dialogue back and forth. Um, The first piece of dialogue. Well, you've, you've kind of got this shift where the Lord finishes speaking about the curse and the covenant of the priests in chapter nine. Um, where he concludes in chapter 9, I also have made you contemptible and base before all people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And then the people kind of respond, uh, kind of through Malachi. It's kind of hard to detect who like the narrator is in a given point. But it says in verse 10, Have we not all one father? Hath the not God one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So this is kind of an acknowledgement that you're right. We have not necessarily been behaving in the way that we should. And Malachi, or the author, expounds further that Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, because Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And this introduces another theme that kind of pervades through the rest of this chapter and elsewhere through Malachi of the metaphor of marriage and idolatry. There, those Marriage is often used as a metaphor for idolatry, and here again you've got this idea that You've married the daughter of a strange god, or you've gone after a woman who worships another god, uh, to be a metaphor for how Israel has gone after other gods. This is like the primary metaphor in the book of Hosea, and also in Isaiah and Jeremiah, they use this metaphor a lot, and Malachi also really leans into this idea that not only has Israel not 
been worshiping God, but it's a betrayal as deep as the violation of a marriage covenant, a marriage contract. And because marriages are formed in terms of covenants and contracts, it's a very apt metaphor to describe the relationship Israel is supposed to have with the Lord, that they're not just in a friend agreement, they are in a contract, a covenant to be loyal to one another. And so when you break that trust, it is as jarring and as visceral as the betrayal of an unfaithful spouse. And so the Lord continues, um, well, Malachi continues talking about what the Lord will do and why we need to return unto the Lord. And verse 14 kind of, uh, again, has the question-answer dialogue. Yet, ye, oh, so in verse 13, I should actually back up, it talks about how... Um, the people are going to cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping. There's going to be so much anguish. And you say, wherefore or why? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Um, this verse is a little confusing, but basically it's talking about how the Lord is a witness between the marriage of Israel and his wife, which is also kind of the Lord in this metaphor. But the idea being that because the Lord was the witness to this marriage contract or this marriage covenant, um, he is also a witness to your treachery. And so he knows um, all the evil that you've done. And uh, that's kind of the summarizes how the rest of the chapter goes. Um, it finally ends off in verse 16 to 17. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. And when it says uh, the Lord hateth putting away, what he's really saying is he hates divorce. And that's kind of a metaphor for saying he hates breaking covenants. He hates breaking contracts because the Lord is faithful. Um, what's that scripture in D&C when... Uh, when DNC eighty two ten when yeah. I am bound when you do what I say, but, but when, when you, you do, do not, not what I, what I say, say, you have no promise. Right, the idea that we are the ones who are often treacherous and often the ones breaking covenants, but the Lord, He's bound and He is inviolable when infallible when it comes to His covenants, and so um, that's why He hates divorce. He hates covenant breaking. Well, is the metaphor really here? Um, he, he hates it when we break our covenants because He. He fulfills them, and he's always faithful to them. And if you can, I mean, look, a- anyone who's ever been in a, a, a relationship or, or anything where the other person is always breaking their promises, breaking their commitments, and you have, like, really invested a lot into the relationship mm-hmm. and, and kept your promises and, and kept your end of the deal, it's frustrating, right? It gets, it gets very, very frustrating, and you can imagine from God's perspective – uh, throughout the whole history of Israel and, and really, you know, even the church today, right, he's having to work with these imperfect people who keep breaking their covenants. And he's like, look, I uphold my covenant. I uphold my end of the deal. And you guys don't. And he hates it. <laughs> and so the message for us is to be covenant keepers, to not break our covenants. And of course, that's not to say that we are out of the reach of mercy when we do fall short of our covenants. God is merciful and he always lets us repent, but it should impress upon us the seriousness of those covenants that we shouldn't make them like 
lightly with the intent to just repent, we should make them intending to keep them and intending to be faithful to God as God is faithful to us just as a spouse would be. So that's basically the gist of Malachi chapter 2. And Malachi chapter 3 kind of continues in that vein from what I understand. And there's more kind of question and answer sort of format there. Neil, do you have any insights into chapter 3? A few, yes. Uh, I may not uh, take nearly as much time as as, uh, Jasmine and Stephen did. So hopefully Hales has a lot to say. (laughs) Well, chapter 4... <laughs> Chapter four is the one where Latter Day Saints yeah, tend to have a lot I, to say. I feel like even, with the juice. even though four is very short, I feel like that's the real bread and butter uh, of Malachi for the restoration and things like that. But we do get with Chapter three, we're we're to the part where Jesus quotes mm-hmm. that Jesus quotes the Nephites. So already from a Latter Day Saint perspective, uh, there's a little clue here that hey, perk up, pay attention. The Lord thinks this is pretty important to know. Um, and going back to Stephen's discussion at the beginning about the name of Malachi, what we actually get here in this very first verse of Malachi 3 is, Behold, I will send my messenger, right? And that's the meaning of Malachi. And uh, so there's kind of a little bit of a play there. Um, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come saith the Lord of hosts. And so if you've maybe felt like we've been talking about temples and covenants a lot and you're feeling maybe a little burned out from that, I have bad news. (laughs) Malachi is going to keep hammering on this. Take it up with Malachi if you have a problem with it. Yeah, really, um, because he's just going to keep going. And the temple and covenants are so important to the context here. Um, Really, this whole chapter, though, verse 2 kind of sets up what this is about. He says... But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Um, And that question there... um, Hang on a second. That's kind of... uh, Like I said, I feel like that's what the, the chapter is kind of based on. And we read it... You know, when Malachi gave it, the Christ hadn't come for the first time, but... Certainly, when Christ gives it to the Nephites, he's giving it a kind of a second coming uh, application here, and that's how we tend to read this as well, is when it talks about the day of the Lord and things like that, um, uh, the day of his coming, that's what it's alluding to, is this the second coming, who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth. And um, the first, the, that for several verses, it kind of goes over... Uh, kind of people who won't make it, if you will. Uh, you have you have sorcerers and adulterers and false swearers and those who oppress the hireling for in his wages, um, those that oppress the widow and the orphans and turn aside the stranger. That's all in uh, verse five. Um, those who have gone away uh, from mine ordinances and have not kept them in verse seven. Uh, those who have robbed God in tithes and offerings, which is what we quote and talk about a lot, I feel like. Um, and then uh, verse 13, those who spoke against God. These are all the people who will not abide his coming, right? And that uses this, um, the end of verse 2 there, it talks about he is like a refiner's fire. He's like fuller's soap. And this is, um, 
a refiner's fire, of course, is making an allusion to a metallurgical process that people in the ancient world probably would have been much more familiar with. And verse 3, it continues on with that metaphor. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, uh, that they may uh, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And we didn't talk about this when we gave our recap of the Temple of Mount Zion conference, but one of the presenters did talk about... uh, Margaret Barker. Yeah, Margaret Barker talked about the idea that that the high priests or the the priests and the Levites were actually metal workers and that metallurgy was actually had kind of this ritual element to it. And this is something that's actually been done by some other scholars as well. Last year I did a bunch of reading on this actually uh, for for a research project I was doing. Uh, one scholar, this Israeli scholar named Nesim Amzalig, has actually he wrote a paper arguing uh, that that Yahweh, the earliest worshippers of Yahweh, were metallurgists, and he was kind of viewed as a god of metallurgy in particular. And there's a bunch of symbolism that he talks about. But for this context, with this silver refiner's silver and refiner's fire, I actually thought that um, there's a paper by one Jeremy Smoke or Smock. I don't know how to say his name. S M O A K. Um, he's an expert on the Ketephenom omelets that are made of silver, and he, he you mean has, amulets, <laughs> omelets. Oh yes, omelets. Well, 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 Maybe they can you tell it's a fast Sunday? Yeah, it's, it's, well, we had we had breakfast dinner uh, tonight, so you know omelets <laughs> are on my mind here. Um, amulets, yeah. He, <laughs> he he's he's an expert on the Ketephenom amulets, which are these little silver scrolls. Um, and he has a paper that came out last year um, titled, You Have Refined Us Like Silver, Yahweh's Metallurgical Powers in Ancient Judah. And he argues that there are several passages that actually portray the Lord as being a metal worker who works specifically in silver and gold. And that when these amulets were made out of silver, it wasn't just some kind of, you know, it just wasn't just a wealthy elite being like, look at how rich I am. I put my scriptures on silver. Silver was like ritually and theologically important to them as uh, as it pertains to Yahweh's powers. And um, this is obviously one passage. He didn't actually cite this passage in the paper, which kind of surprised me, but he cites a passage in Jeremiah 6 and uh, I think uh, Zechariah 13 and then of course Numbers 6 because that's uh, what what's actually on the amulets but um, there is this idea the, the point simply being that here we have the Lord is going to there's when the Lord appears this metallurgical power that he has is, is what Malachi is playing into when he talks about he's going to be like a refiner's fire and he's going to the refining fire is going to purify uh, the people, right? And all of those wicked people that I talked about, uh, that, that get talked about in these other verses, right? The adulterers and uh, false swearers and so forth, the covenant breakers and all of these people. Those are not the people who are going to abide that purifying, that refining process. Um, and so you finally get to the answer here uh, when you get to um, verse... Uh, 18, the very, like you get to the end of the chapter, um, and then it talks about those who will discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And this is kind of your culmination, and 
It's kind of like this is your answer. That's who's going to be able to abide the Lord's coming. And so that's who we need to strive to be, is to be able to discern between righteousness and wickedness um, and between him that serveth God and him who isn't serving God. Um, And so I think that really kind of sums up the essence of chapter 3, of Malachi 3, and uh, unless anyone wants has anything really important they want to say about the tithing passage, which I think maybe you know I didn't give a lot of time to, I think we can. I would just like to point out uh, it's framed as a rhetorical question: Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? Uh, this is a, a common repeating uh, technique that Malachi uses. So we see it yeah. again and again. So go read in your study. Go read all the other rhetorical questions that Malachi raises and the response that – like the, the rhetorical response that he gives because each time that's kind of uh, – it's – I don't want to say a straw man, but he's, he's sort of creating he's, – he's putting in, in, the, in our mouths what we shouldn't be saying, right? Like he's kind of giving us the answer, the, the wrong answer. Uh, uh, as it were, right? Yeah. So uh, that we, we like to proof text the tithing uh, 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 passage, but there are several others throughout Malachi um, where he does the same sort of strategy, which I find very interesting. All right. If we're ready, I'll move on to chapter 4. Is uh, there anything else anyone wants to say on 3? No, do that? go right ahead. All right. Chapter 4 is where the action is. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Or in other words, neither ancestry nor posterity. The parts of the tree from which the tree comes, and the parts that protrude from it. Uh, In this day, all those who have put their trust in worldliness or in the economy of this world must confront reality of death, and beyond even that, uh, confront the reality of the resurrection. Uh, In the resurrection, we learn in Doctrine and Covenants 132, um, it says, And verily I say unto you, uh, speaking of the everlasting covenant, that the conditions of this law are these. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise of him who is anointed, both as well for time and for all eternity, and that too most holy by revelation and commandment through the medium of mine anointed. And there is never but, uh, let's see, uh, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, and I have appointed my servant Joseph. And it goes on for a second. Um, and are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. So, nothing lasts through death and the resurrection unless it is sealed by God's power. Um, it goes on to make this even more clear. And everything that is in the world, whether it be ordained of men by thrones or principalities or powers or things of name, whatsoever they may be that are not by me or by my word, saith the Lord, shall be thrown down and shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection, saith the Lord your God. For whatsoever things remain are by me and whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. So in the resurrection... 
and this this uh, passage in Malachi seems to make it clear, relationships that are not specifically sanctioned by God's law do not persist, regardless of what names these relationships may have been called by mortal men on earth. So when this day comes, it risks leaving people with neither root nor branch, neither ancestry nor posterity. Continuing on. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness, and that Son is in the, the bright, bright glowing orb, rather than uh, offspring, sense of S-O-N, so it's S-U-N, not S-O-N, of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Can be taken care of. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. And here is where it gets interesting. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And here... The Lord next reveals the solution to the problem presented in verse 1. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day that leaves neither root nor branch, the Lord will reveal Elijah the prophet, who we will recall had power to seal the heavens shut uh, that it didn't rain, and open them again thereafter. And he was also one of the characters brought directly into heaven. In his case, uh, while his successor looked on, he was taken up in the chariot of fire and was also one of those who restored authority to the apostles on the mountain of transfiguration. And Jesus described this authority as allowing the apostles to seal on earth and in heaven. Um, and it seems that this authority returned through Elijah's ministry provides the solution to the problem of a rootless, branchless future that the Lord lays out. Um, because he provides the means whereby these relationships can be forged together by God's authority so that they do remain in and after the resurrection of the dead. And that suggests that indeed this sealing power is central to the purposes for which the earth was created. And this is amplified um, in what Moroni taught the prophet Joseph Smith about these verses. So when Moroni visited Joseph Smith and began his instructions to him, uh, that Moroni quoted this passage with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Instead of quoting the first verse as it reads in our books, he quoted it thus, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn in an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall burn in stubble, for they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And again he quoted the fifth verse thus, Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He also quoted the next verse differently, And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. And that strengthens it considerably. Not only would the earth be spent with a curse, 
I mean, presumably there have been a number of curses that have come upon it in various degrees. But this amplifies that to that the whole earth would be utterly wasted, as in would fail to fulfill the measure of its creation if it were not for this binding and sealing authority. And with these, these quotations and these concerns, the Lord is in essence laying out the trajectory of the restoration to the Kirtland era. Before there is a Book of Mormon translation published, Moroni is already promising that Elijah will be sent to restore the priesthood keys of sealing, which will pre prevent the earth from being utterly wasted at the coming of the Lord by sealing together the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers so that we would not be with neither root nor branch. Um, and so in, instead, the human family could be bound together with the forging those links that would allow them to be one family. And it, it's, I think, at the very least, an interesting piece of information to account for for those who were supposing that Joseph was just making this up. Because you have these angelic uh, visitations that are being promised before there's even a Book of Mormon, which are later provided and witnessed by more than one person that fulfill these purposes that have been laid out from the beginning and, in fact, will uh, interlace with and fulfill promises made in the Book of Mormon and elsewhere. So it, it's, it's interesting watching uh, or looking carefully at these scriptures because in the Book of Mormon and the revelations to the Prophet Joseph Smith, you have the tapestry of the gospel just com coming out full, fully printed <laughs> um, before he'd even read the Book of Mormon yet. And it's really quite a miracle. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I... Oh, sorry, Jasmine, did you have a comment you were going to make? One of the things I find interesting about Malachi 4 is that it talks about turning the hearts of the fathers to children and children to fathers. And today it's easy to read that as like, oh, family history. Because that's mm -hmm. kind of how we you've, we've used it for so much. Um, but that that understanding really took a while to develop, that that's what Moroni meant, that's what Malachi meant, or that's what it was referring to. I mean... In the earliest days of the sealing doctrine, we were sealing, uh, you know, we had polygamy, and so we were sealing multiple wives, different people, trying to create sealing links that way, and we were adopting sons to each other and daughters to each other. We were creating all these different family links, and it really wasn't until Wilfred Woodruff that we started really understanding that, oh, wait, we need to seal our own ancestors together instead of creating these artificial, like, dynasties, kind of, through the sealing ordinance. We need to be sealing our families. We need to go back through the generations so that we can connect 
the entire human family back to God. And so now Malachi has renewed meaning for Latter-day Saints, and it's taken time to get to that point, but I think seeing that historical development makes us appreciate it all the more, that the sealing ordinance is about so much more, and it's so expansive for drawing God's children all together into one covenant. One covenant family. Yeah, I, I probably the only other thing to mention, um, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure, Hales, if, if you touched on this, I, th- I think you may have briefly, but uh, just in case you didn't, um, this this prophecy of Elijah coming before the, you know, before the coming of the great judgment day of the Lord, uh, this features prominently in the New Testament, obviously, right? Um, <coughs> excuse me. This features prominently in the New Testament with John the Baptist, right? So um, not long after when the prophecy is given, well, I guess a couple centuries, whatever, you know, what's, co- <laughs> what's a couple centuries between friends? But within the New, but, but within the, within, uh, even within the Second Temple Jewish tradition, we could say, uh, there was already an expectation of Elijah returning in some significant eschatological way, and many view that as John the Baptist, right, in, in the New Testament. Yeah, and in fact, one of the things that actually kind of struck me a couple years ago when I was I studied this a little bit is, um, so we think of Elijah returning, and we think of Kirtland Temple, we think of 1836, and that is, of course... That's when Elijah himself comes and bestows the keys specifically prophesied in this passage. But who who comes first to restore the priesthood? John the, John the Baptist, Baptist, who is yeah. who is understood as this Elijah figure or Elias, as it gets rendered in, in, in Greek the, in yeah. the, from from yeah from the Greek. Uh, this Elias figure in the New Testament, and then who comes after that to restore the next level of priesthood? Peter, Peter, James, James and John, who are who were there on, on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Elijah is yeah. actually the one who bestows priesthood key, you know, in sealing the restoration comes Jesus, the sealing, yeah. sealing power of, uh, and you know, Elijah yeah. and Moses are there pro- providing the priesthood and sealing power and so forth. Um, and so Elijah really is, and or the concept of Elijah at least, <laughs> is really at the core of every level of priesthood restoration from the Aaronic to the Melchizedek to the temple sealing power that gets restored in Kirtland in 1836. Yep. Let's see. Now, there's one other point I want to make, which is if you look at the end of their chapter in the King James Bible, it says the end of the prophets. (laughs) (laughs) But you should realize that that does not mean the end of the prophets. It means the end of the section of... The scriptures called the prophets, which is called the prophets. <laughs> there are, if, if, if any, if there's any doubt, there's there are prophets mentioned in the New Testament, and if you can't notice all of the, the prophecies just flying around in the thing, uh, well, good luck. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yes, yes, do not. Do not mistake that uh, for meaning that the, there are never yeah. to be prophets again. All right.